Hi, everybody. Ooh, that's a good song. I'm digging that one all over the place. I am so glad we're doing that. Hey, before um, I get rolling here, I just want to let you know that Easter week is coming up. Um, Pastor Dan said this, and uh, I'm kind of excited about this because we're going to do <clears throat> uh, Palm Sunday, which is the, somebody help me, what's the date? Ninth, uh, I guess, the ninth. And then uh, we're going to do Good Friday, a Good Friday service here in the evening. We're actually going to be across the hall in the gym. Uh, we're really excited about some of the cool stuff that we're going to be doing that night to get us ready for Resurrection Sunday, which is on the 16th, which is the highest, holiest, coolest day of the year, at least for Christians. So, um, and we're going to be uh, in the gym for that, that one as well. So we're really excited about some of the things that are coming up. So get it on your calendar. You're not going to want to miss it. And you're going to want to invite your friends and family too, because it's going to be a really, really great day. We're, uh, we're real excited about, about that. Can you tell we're excited about it? Yes, we are. Very, very excited. So, boy, I'm glad to see you today. I thought it was going to rain. Uh, apparently, that's not going to happen until later, so that's good. Beautiful day outside, and you are here with us. So glad that you are. Um, sometimes, <clears throat> well, I should say this. When, whenever um, I'm trying to do a teaching or a talk or something, usually I look for um, either a, an idea or an illustration. Um, um, most often it's a particular scripture passage that's going to drive the message that we're talking about forward. Sometimes, however, when you get to one of those passages or a cluster of passages, as it might be, trying to show the nature of God, you start reading the passage and you want to understand some of the context around that passage. And then the study gets to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. That kind of happened this week. So there's a couple of things you need to understand. Whenever we open up the Bible, there's two assumptions that I am always going to make, and, and I, I just think it's a good practice to do this. And the first assumption is, is this, that as soon as I crack open the book, I am now a visitor. Because that book was written to a different group of people at a different point in time that has a, a lot of... A, a, of differences when it comes to culture and customs and what's normal for them. And very often when I'm reading the text, there's things in there that I don't fully understand largely because I didn't live in that time period and I didn't grow up in that culture. Does that make sense? So immediately, as soon as I crack open that book, I know I'm a visitor. Okay, that's assumption number one. Assumption number two is that um, the, the writer of that particular work, whatever the, whatever the book is in the Bible, that writer is sophisticated. It's not just a random collection of stories. And sometimes I feel like we treat that, especially when we're talking about Jesus. Because it's so easy for us to pull a particular verse or a passage and put it on a bumper sticker or on a refrigerator magnet. And, and we, 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 we come up with all kinds of, well, that, that's saying that to me today. And yeah, that might be true. But the point is, is that that writer put that verse, that, that collection of words or that series of words in that order for a reason. They are what I like to call authors with agendas. They're trying to communicate something to us. And we can't just look at one little verse in a vacuum. 
But there's, there's a whole series of things that that author is trying to say. Does this make sense? I mean, people sit down and they actually, you know, how many times have you gotten an email where it just seemed like a random collection of things? No, nobody sends you those kinds of emails unless they're from like Nigeria and they want to send you, you know, a million dollars or something like that. But the, the point is, is that every time we crack open that book, we're visitors and we have to assume that the author is trying to communicate something to his audience and that audience existed a long time ago and yet we can still learn something. So we, we have to look at it, not just um, in a vacuum, but within a broader context within that book. So what often happens when you start reading a couple of verses before and a couple of verses after, you realize, oh, maybe I'm not getting the whole story. And so a couple of verses more and a couple of verses after, and that's exactly what happened this week. And so I want to zoom out a little bit and look at a fairly large passage of Scripture today. We're going to be in the book called Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to start. We're not going to end there, but we're going to start in Luke chapter 9. And uh, so you might want to turn there, and uh, I'm going to go through a series of things, and, and here's, here's kind of what the goal is. The goal is to look at this passage, and I'm going to gloss over some things, and I'm going to hit some other, because I want you to see something in the text. And so we're going to, we're going to try to figure it out in that context, and then see if there's something that we can apply to our lives. Okay, so the, the phrase that we use around here is, we try to take the word, we absorb it, and then live it out. That's, that's kind of what we're doing. So Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. And while you're turning there, Luke is a Greek physician. And so he's got a level of detail in his book um, that we find we don't necessarily find in, in some of the other Gospels. It is a biography of Jesus. Um, and Luke, very talented writer, and it's part of a larger work that we call Luke Acts. Because we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we have the book of Acts, and then we have Romans. But if you, if you extracted John and put it off to the side and crammed Luke and Acts together, you would have one very cohesive narrative, okay? So we often call it the book of Luke-Acts. And the, like I said, there's a level of detail here, but Luke, because of his training and his background, let me tell you, this, this man has an agenda. There are some things that he wants his readers to know, and so that's what we're going to dig into. Now, if you are a Bible nerd, you are going to love this, because we're going we're gonna to dig deep. This is hardcore Bible study. Um, some of you, this might be new for you, and hang with me here. I, I think this is going to make sense, and hopefully I put this together in such a way that it's, it's going to be compelling as we kind of go along, but ultimately, I don't care what, where you are on that spectrum. God's got something for you today, and I want you to hear this because I think um, this is one of those subject matters that just, it, it bugs me personally because there's something, a couple of things in here that I struggle with, and typically speaking, if God's messing with you on it, that's probably some of the things that you should be preaching and teaching on. So that said, that's the disclaimer. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 51. Okay, so we're going to go kind of deep into this. I want to point out a couple of things as we're moving along. Okay, Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 51. Let me just read this uh, quickly. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, uh, I've got it up here on the screen for you. 
because there's a couple of, a couple of things I want you to, to, to notice. As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, this is a phrase that's very common to Luke. Luke is very interested in the fact that Jesus left this earth and went to heaven at some point. In fact, we find the same phrase in a couple of different places within the text. So um, uh, what we have here is this uh, marker for Luke in time. And then secondly is Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Up until this point, he's done most of his ministry in the northern part of Israel near and around the Sea of Galilee. And now he is moving southward toward Jerusalem, which is the capital. So think of it this way. It's as if Jesus came to Oklahoma, because God knows we need Jesus here in Oklahoma too, right? And he did all of his ministry around Tulsa. So Claremore and Owasso and Jenks, because they need Jesus more than anybody else, right? And, and, and so, did I say it out loud? Whoops. Anyway... And Bixby too, okay, because that's where I live. And, uh, uh, and so he's done all of his ministry, but then he sets himself res uh, uh, resolutely to go to the capital, which is Oklahoma City in the south, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so this is what's happening in the text. So we have these two major markers. Yeah, you can kind of see the Sea of Galilee up here, and Jerusalem is down here, okay? Leave that up for me, um, Dana, by the way. So we, so we have this movement in the text. And what this marks is a distinct shift in the text. Luke is signaling something. He goes, hey, I've got a time marker and I have a geography marker here. Pay attention because something's about, about to go down. Make sense? So we know that this is happening within in the text. He's deliberately doing this. So to get from up here, this town called Nazareth where Jesus was from, and to get down here to Jerusalem, they have to go through this area of a country called Samaria. Now, let me explain something to you about Samaria. Jewish people and Samaritans did not like each other. That's an understatement. If it weren't for the Romans, they'd probably be at war. They really, really hated each other. Um, if you want to talk about racism, this is racism in the extreme. And so what we find in the text in the very next segment is Jesus resolutely decided that he was moving towards Jerusalem. They knew they had to go to Samaria. So Jesus sent his disciples um, into some of the Samaritan villages, at least one of them, and that village did not want him. Why? Because he was going to Jerusalem. <laughs> no, no, no. We don't want you. A little there's an interesting um, passage that occurs there. Um, but uh, I don't want to take too much time to develop, but just needless to say that the Samaritans did not want Jesus spending a whole lot of time in their villages, and this becomes very interesting later. So stay with me on this. Let's jump down to verse 57 now, okay? Verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Next slide. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Boy, does that seem harsh? Just a little bit. Okay. Next slide. <clears throat> Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, man, Jesus, come on now. 
So notice that there's something that's happening here. And the first one is this movement marker. Remember, he's resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And it says, while he's on the road. So you know he's moving, okay? There's movement within the text, and it's all related to one another. And so when he's on the road, he has a conversation with three different individuals. Now, the first one says to him, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus makes an answer. The second one, Jesus looks at him and invites him and says, why don't you follow me? And they have a little exchange. And the third kind of combines the two. He says, I will follow you, but first I need to. Okay? So we have these three different um, conversations with three specific individuals and these kind of cryptic answers. And what's so interesting to me is that if you've got a New International Version Bible, it, it may say something um, like a title to this. It'll say something like the cost of discipleship or the cost of following Jesus. And that's essentially what Jesus is doing here is that he's saying to each one of these individuals, look, it's fine, but understand that this is what following means. It means a, a lot more than what you think it means. I think this word means what you don't think it means, right? There is this... Um, transparency that Jesus is ultimately trying to make with these potential disciples. And the thing that I find um, so fascinating about all of it is that the truth of the matter is, it's not just that he's being open and honest and transparent. He's actually laying out in front of these potential individuals a choice. He's laying out choices. And the choice is, if you follow me, you need to understand this is what it means to follow. And so the choice is ultimately yours. So when you say something like, I will follow you wherever you go, understand that that's a choice that you're making, and here's what it means. You know, if you want to go do something else, understand that that's a choice too. Are you, are you tracking with me? The, the word uh, or the phrase that we use around here is that um, whenever you have a, a choice, and we all have lots of choices, um, when you choose to say yes to one thing, it means you're, you're choosing to say no to something else. And so the phrase that we use around here is there's pros and cons. Which cons do you want to live with? Right? Which one do you want to live with? I read one author who put it this way. He said, there's no such thing really as a solution. There's only trade-offs. You're, you're making trade-offs between one thing or another. We all have choices. And Jesus is just trying to be completely open about, here's the trade-off that you're making. It's all about these particular choices. All right, let's move on to verse or chapter 10 for a moment, okay? Let's look at this. Chapter 10, verse 1. <clears throat> After this, so apparently they're still on the road. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. These are people who chose, who said yes to, to what Jesus was um, asking them to do, to follow. Appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So there we have more movement that's going on here. So he's taking a pause and he says, okay, I'm going to send out a group of people who have said yes to, to um, following me. And these two by twos, and consider them like this, they're the advanced team. They're an advanced team who go into a village 
and they, they, they do some, some work, but they're basically announcing the fact that this rabbi named Jesus is coming to town too. So uh, advanced team, he sends them out. And he gives them a series of instructions. And, and a lot has been made of some of these destructions, uh, in, <laughs> destructions, instructions. It's called a Freudian slip and a man who has not had enough coffee this morning. So anyway, uh, so he gives them some uh, instructions on how to go up about um, doing this. Now, Skip down to verse 17. We have a little more movement that's going on. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Interesting. So so they go and they follow the instructions and they come back with joy. And then Jesus makes a very interesting set of statements here. Um, Let's look down here. Here we are in verse 20. He's rejoicing with them, but he says, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, notice this. Don't do this, do that. What's that? It's a choice. What are you going to focus your attention on? And what he's suggesting to them is don't rejoice in the fact that you have this power, but you have to understand where the power comes from. It's not the fact that the demons submit in your name. It's the fact that that your names are written in heaven that gives you that power. Put the focus on the right spot. Does that make sense? So the choice is yours. You can focus on the fact that the spirits are submitting to you. And frankly, that's pretty cool that that actually occurs. And guess what? There are entire denominations built on that idea. But what does Jesus say? Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. You need to understand what's really driving this thing. It isn't the power. It's really the fact that there is a power giver. There's a source here, ultimately. Rejoice in your Names are written in heaven. It's a really interesting, interesting passage here. Choose this, don't choose that. Now, keep going a little bit more. Let's look at verse 22. You see how we're progressing through this rather large swath here of Scripture. Uh, Verse 22, all things have been committed to me by my Father. This is what Jesus says. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, And no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son, what's the word? Chooses. Yeah, chooses to reveal him. To whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Really interesting passage. And then he turns to his disciples. Remember, he's got 72 people in front of him, and he told them all this, and now he looks at the 12, and he makes this statement. He says to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that... See what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Ah, so not only did Jesus choose to reveal, but what he's really saying is that God chose to reveal this to you. Isn't that beautiful? You've got choice, you've got choice, you've got choice, you've got choice. Guess what? And God chose you. Isn't that cool? 
This idea of choices even extends to what the Father is, is choosing to do among the people who follow Jesus. And by the way, that same sentiment echoes down throughout the ages to you and to me. God chooses to reveal these things to each of us in his, his own way. God's choice to reveal. Now, something happens in the text. There's almost a, it's almost like a pause, I think. Because if you look, <clears throat> verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, first of all, please understand, this was a very common practice. This is not just a, a teacher of the law challenging Jesus because he was being mean. This happened to Jewish rabbis all the time. If a rabbi entered a village and there was a local, uh, a local rabbi, a local uh, Bible teacher of some type, um, the first thing we do is we would test their knowledge of the scriptures, test their knowledge of theology, of their understanding of God. So this is not just a challenge just to be like, you know, come on, double dog dare you. It's not anything like that. It's more, I'm trying to understand really if you're worthy of teaching, okay? So this is a very common occurrence, lots of questions, okay? Fascinating how this works out. And so Jesus uh, answers a question with a question, very rabbinic. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. End of story, right? No, 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 no. The Pharisee <clears throat> wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? <laughs> Look out, here it comes. So Jesus tells him a story. And the story is one that we have often heard, especially if you've grown up in the church. Now, i got to be honest. This is the story that just, okay, so this priest, this Levite, and a Samaritan all walk into a bar. It just sounds like the beginning of a really bad joke. I'm sorry, it does, right? It just cracks me up. But what happens is a man is traveling, and he's, he's set upon by, by robbers and thieves. He's beat up, and he's le- and, and, and completely robbed, and then, and then left for dead. And, and what it says is that a priest walks up and decides to go to the other side of the road because he doesn't want to deal with the mess. So too a Levite. Please understand, in Jewish culture, the priests and the Levites had a very high position. They're the ones who cared for Israel. And Jesus deliberately sets them up in a negative light because he chooses a Samaritan. I remember just a chapter ago, Samaritans didn't want Jesus. That's how much their hatred was. And so Luke is actually setting us up with that little Samaritan narrative. That's how shocking it was for Jesus to use a Samaritan when it actually cared for the man who is beat up. Jesus loved to stir the pot. Loved it. He tried to shake people out of their traditional understandings of things. So here it is. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and we saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, of all 
people a Samaritan, really? Yes. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him and then ended up caring for him out of his own pocket. It's an interesting verse. Now, please understand, when the priest happened upon him, when the Levite came to the place, and when the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, each one of them had what? A choice. These two chose to pass by on the other side of the road, but the Samaritan made the choice to actually care for him, to go out of his way to care for him. A choice, a choice, a choice. And then, then at the end of this, this is a beautiful passage here, drop down to verse 36. Jesus finishes his story and he looks at, at the, uh, the, the teacher of the law and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him couldn't even say the word Samaritan. (laughs) And Jesus told him, go and do likewise, which is what? A choice. You need to choose to do likewise, even though it's your hated enemy he still demonstrated the principle, the idea behind this better than anybody else. Go and emulate that. It's another another choice, I think. And then Luke brings the entire movement to a close. Look at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples... What? We're on their way. Remember? He's resolutely set himself towards Jerusalem. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. How many of you have heard this story before? Yeah, yeah, this is a common story in the church too. It's a neat story actually. So he comes to this place along the road. A woman opens her home to him. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made and she came to him, meaning Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Stomping my foot a little bit. Um, go back to the next, the uh, first slide. Martha was distracted. This word is very interesting in Greek. It means to be pulled about, like in many directions. Just feel pulled about. Great word. But Martha was pulled pulled about by all of the preparations that had to be made. So she complains. Next slide. <clears throat> I get a feeling Jesus is like, oh Martha, <laughs> just kind of. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has, what's the word? Chosen. Chosen. What is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And the narrative closes right there. Very interesting. You know, the entire passage is about choice after choice after choice. 
And what I find so fascinating is that when he talks about all of the choices that we have to make, the one thing that he lands on at the very end of the entire narrative is busyness. Seriously, think about this. If this is the the ending piece of this, how important do you think that it was to Luke? It's busyness. Being busy. And the distraction that goes along with it. And I just find that not only was this relevant to you know, people some 2,000 years ago, but it seems almost even more relevant to today. And I'm guilty of that like everyone else. In today's culture, it's so easy to default to busy. So how are you? I'm busy. Really? What you up to? I'm just busy. What you busy doing? Oh, just so much stuff. Right? I think we're busy thinking about the things that we're busy about more than we are actually busy, right? It happens. There's a blogger. His name is Tyler Ward. He's not the same thing as the music guy, Tyler Ward. Um, he's an internet marketer. But he wrote this really great blog post called Busy is No Longer Respectable. I really like this. This is one of the things that he says. For one month, I'm going to stop using the word busy. I'm going to resist the comfort of it to try and dig deeper to explain how things really are. If I feel busy, my hope is to be aware enough to discover why and to learn how I can change it. Join me, or at the very least, remember that being busy isn't all it's cracked up to be and often isn't as necessary as we think. My argument is we are addicted to busy. Busy, busy, busy. When I was growing up, there was a term for that. It was busybody. <laughs> and the word meant something a little bit different. It meant you were in other people's business, right? And it wasn't just business. It was business. You know what I'm talking about. His observation is that busy is self-fulfilling prophecy. We say it more than we actually feel it. Actually, it's the other way around. We say it, and so we feel it. And so if we feel it, then we act it. And so we're basically building ourselves into this idea of being busy over and over. And it's probably undermining, really, who we are as people. Busy is no longer respectable. The fact of the matter is sometimes we're busy out of a couple of different ideas. We're busy out of fear. Or, you know, fear of failure, so I've got I to gotta work really, really hard so that I can avoid that failure. I'm busy out of, out of fear. Sometimes I'm busy out of distraction, <laughs> which distraction is just lack of clarity. I have no idea what it is I'm supposed to be doing, so I'm going to be busy. If I'm just busy, then people are going to leave me alone, and I can actually get my stuff done. Come on now, I know what it's like to be at work, and it happens. Sometimes we're busy because of other people's demands. That's true too. All of these things steal our focus, steal our, our, our vision for what life could be. And please understand, I am not talking about working hard here. There is a difference. I mean, you need to work hard, especially if you're, you're clear about what you're doing. And, and I'm not talking about being productive or being effective. I am talking about busy for the sake of being busy. Activity is not the same thing as productivity. Did you know that? 
So my question for you today is what's pulling you about? I really like that term. What's pulling you about? Maybe it's one of these, fear. Maybe it's distraction. Maybe it's other people's demands. What is it? What's pulling you about? We're, we're coming up now on the end of the, series, uh, um, of the season of Lent. And um, this entire Lenten season, we've been talking about giving things up. But not giving up things like chocolate or social media, but giving up things that are actually aren't good for us, that aren't healthy for us. So maybe we should give up busyness. Maybe we should join Mr. Ward in his notion of giving it up for, you don't even have to do it for a month. Just give it up for a couple of weeks till Easter. You can pick up it again if you want to after Easter. My guess is, is that you're probably not going to want to. Busyness. And so I'm just going to ask you to take a hard look, take an honest look the things that pull you about. And, and, and here's, here's where I'm going to meddle. Can I meddle? Good, because I'm going to anyway. What choice do you need to make to not be busy? What choices do you need to make? Because busyness is a choice. It's a choice that we have. And it's a choice that we cannot make to do something else. So what choice do you need to make? Need to make?